With Super Bowl 55 having failed to garner much interest in dissident spheres, many were surprised to learn the Oscars, Hollywood's annual coronation ceremony for the most approved of messages and mediums, had come and gone as well. In an era of very real danger in the form of pandemic outbreaks and very fake politics, one is tempted just to withdraw from it all. In tonight's After Dark episode, we attempt to sort it all out. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been Hello and welcome to the Oscars After Dark, where we discuss all of the great films that Jewish Hollywood has made in this past year. The glitz, the glamour, the lights. So, who was Oscar? Is my question. Oscar the Grouch. Some Jew doesn't matter. Yeah, is he the guy in the statue? Who is that? The whole thing is really weird. I mean, it's I know it's supported part of Americana, but we're all here to question things. Adam, the giant golden idol that they're worshiping for four hours—is that weird? Well, I saw the Ten Commandments, so I think that's bad, right? I mean, I think that's a little creepy. That they're like all sitting there and like these. The original design was actually more humanoid and American friendly form. Why? Hey, remember when that bitch was like, well, yeah, I'm so glad that I aborted all of my children so that I could achieve the uh, the yes. worldly fame of the movie industry? I think that was, I think that was a Golden Globe speech. Yeah, not was that Michelle not. Williams? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, who people that was are. Michelle Williams. I mean, I always thought she was a terrible actress. I don't really know what she's like. Why she's so celebrated? She just cries in every movie I've ever seen her in. Hmm. I think that's how female actresses are regarded as good actresses. They just get really good at crying on command. I don't know. Well, everybody says Meryl Streep is Jodie Foster is a good actress. I do like Jodie Foster actually. Um, I'm trying to think. I I did like um, the the wife on The Sopranos. I think she's a good actress. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm not a woman, obviously. So relating to what a woman goes through is harder for me. But I don't know what Kate Blanchett. I mean, who who else is like really good? Like this, I think this is actually kind of an interesting topic because I have a much you know, easier Jennifer time. Jennifer Laird's honestly coming up like, with, like men you got to kind of make a distinct because at a certain point, once you're quote unquote like good actress, then you get the uh, you get the call and you've got to like you know spend spend a franchise worth of movies and some cinematic universe or another. But uh, Winter's Bone kicked ass. What about the term actress versus actor? I've been corrected by feminists on this one. Who gives a shit? <laughs> I keep saying <laughs> like, actress. Oh, I say actress, but 
You know, it was like I like, I like how offended you're pretending to be. Anymore. Maybe, uh, maybe you could win an Oscar. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I want it. But um, is it actually made <laughs> out of gold? Might be worth something. No, you get the gift bag. Mm. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> Adam Carolla used to make fun of this because he was on uh, MTV for a few years uh, for Loveline and. Because they started off as a radio show, and you know Adam Carolla is not your leading man type uh, for you know the, the silver screen. They would put him for the MTV uh, Music Awards in the bleachers, like way in the back. They would hide him and Dr. Drew, and he used to make a bit about this every time about how they were sort of like the uh, the intentionally forgotten redheaded stepchildren of the. Uh, of the Hollywood set. Um, but I, I mean, it's so funny. The, um, the glamor that they try to infuse in this whole thing. Do you guys remember the, the selfie pick that I think it was Bradley Cooper or Ellen, or I don't know who actually hold, held yeah. the phone, but they did this yeah. like big selfie group selfie and Twitter took, took uh, off with it. And it was basically like, Hey, look, uh, the CIA is, uh, leading men and women. And, um, I haven't seen that one in a while, but that was... Wasn't there, like... I I don't know. I can't... I, I find it impossible to... Uh, just through the, the constant miasma of, like, occultic uh, imagery and explicit representations to delineate the correspondence between that general purple haze and like particular events but in that giant selfie weren't like a bunch of people making uh weird occultic hand gestures or something or am i misremembering that i don't remember that it was probably remembering some other photo that came out of hollywood where there were weird occultic hand gestures i do have my list of uh every movie that i saw in uh 2019 here or at least every Every movie. Do you normally I have keep a, a list? similar list? So the the only film that I saw that was well, I should say two. There's two films I saw that were actually like I think part of the Oscars last the other night. Uh, Joker and 1917 are the only films I saw this last year that showed up. So I don't know what you guys. I don't know what you guys thought of my, well, my list. Is even shorter, so I, um, I'll let Hank, well, Hank and Nick go ahead. Yeah, I don't know what the correspondence is. Okay, I well, I wanted Oscars were happening until people are like, "OMG, the Oscars!" I just see it on Twitter. Uh, my list of most memorable films that I saw this year. Uh, some of it will be pretty familiar to people. So I have uh, uh, Blue Velvet uh, by David Lynch, and I have Ron by Kira Kurosawa, uh, Excalibur, Excalibur by John Borman, uh, Heat, Michael Mann's Heat. And, wait, wait, wait. wait. Uh, These, these are the not Leopard. 2019. Kurosawa was the first uh, one. I was like, wait a minute. But then Heat was no, 95. No, no, no. These... And... Uh, they came out somewhat recently, you know, some of them, but uh, no, was I was in the 90s. You know, some of them might, might slightly miss the cutoff. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, um, oh, oh, we have, uh, oh, we do have a film from uh, 2019. 
So by default, I suppose that's going to have to win Best Picture because that's the one that did come out in 2019. And if you guys haven't seen that, that movie is absolute and it has. Uh, Wait, which movie, Nick? Fantastic performance you cut for everyone, but you cut off for me. The Lighthouse. Oh yeah, I wouldn't mean to see that. It is a, a director Eggers. It's a fantastic film. Uh, I will also give a an honorable mention for best cinematography to uh, Triumph of the Will by Lainey Riefenstahl. <laughs> I get it now. You're doing your own award show. See, I think I just want to underscore this. Like, this is basically how arbitrary this whole thing is. Like, nobody like in the Congress, like deigned the Oscars, some kind of official event. It was just the movie industry basically pumping their shit. And, you know, if we, obviously we don't support Hollywood. And if we want to promote and inculcate a culture that is superior, well, it already is superior, but we just need to promote it better uh, to the filth that Hollywood puts out. I mean, this is basically what they did. All they did was just, they, they created this big, kerfuffle on uh and explain to me why it's at the chinese theater that always was weird to me too i was like wait, wait what like it shouldn't be like it, didn't American used, to theater. Be. it used to be work. at the theater like across the street or something i can't remember why it moved but way back it 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 was at a different theater in downtown la that's i think right around the corner or across the street but it got to the point where they had to build a bigger theater and, you know, became more and more popular. So they had to house more people. Yeah. I don't think that there's anything creepy about the Chinese theater. I, I think that the creepiest thing about the Oscar is the giant humanoid statue made of gold that they stand in front of for a couple hours every night. That's kind of weird. That, they, that, I, got, I, got a good, I should uh, add, it's interesting... They, they can't even manage to promote the few things that Hollywood does put out well, you know, or at least things tangentially related to Hollywood. I, I don't know if you would call David Lynch, for example, a Hollywood. I mean, he makes movies about the dark side of Hollywood, but he, of course, has never won an Academy Award. Uh, neither has Martin Scorsese. So, no, he did for the Departed. Didn't, didn't the Irishman win something? No, the Departed, he won Best uh, Picture, I think. Uh, but that was a concession after he year, won years of putting picture things for... out. Yeah, yeah, he won for the Departed. I actually know that, but um, no, he he should have won it for Goodfellas and went to dances with dorks, um, and it was uh, that was a big upset. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that that was oh, dances with wolves. It, that they, that they the Kevin Costner movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, man! Have you guys seen that movie? Like in the last five six years. Does not age well. Yeah, I. Uh, I really, I, I think I, that Oscars should be given like five years after the fact. Right. It's like wow, you know, like of all the don't think movies, Nicholas from... Cage has ever won Best Actor. That is true. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I, I agree with you, Hank, because there's a lot of films that win Oscar awards, and a couple of years later, you're like. Oh, that was a movie. Like, remember when the King's speech was a big hit and that won all these awards? I've never seen it. And a couple of years later, everyone was kind of like, oh, yeah, that, that movie. Well, that it, It's like you, you have to do the, 
you know, we're all about the uh, the political and metapolitical analysis, but it's it's like the members of the academy. It's basically if you've got a Hollywood union card as uh, you know one of these people in one of these uh, categories, you know, actors, directors, etc., and you've worked in the last however many years, then you get to vote, and so you see a lot of situations where. Uh, something is obviously kind of an actor's movie. It's not impressive necessarily as a movie, right. but it's like, let's look at Colin Firth. Was it that started that? Yes. Yeah. 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 And then uh, we're, we're yeah, going to watch Colin this guy Firth. try to like, try to mock every stage of a stutter, which actually is kind of difficult. You can see why that would be extremely impressive just from a, a technical acting right. perspective and why you would be extremely impressed and want to, uh, you know, demonstrate your appreciation of the, the difficulty and the outcome of that as an actor. That's, well, the inverse of that is maybe, uh, I don't know, a film like 1917, which came out uh, earlier this year. And, you know, that film, the actors in the film, th there are some big names. I think, like, Kenneth Branagh just, like, randomly shows up uh, for one scene. Um, but, you know, that film is really more of the kind of old cinematic experience, right, where it's this sort of grand epic. We're going to take our time. There's all these various people that kind of move in and out. The characters don't matter as much. It's more, you know, how do I show off my filmmaking expertise rather than my ability to direct actors in a scene. I don't know. Yeah, you can tell where somebody is and it can be really impressive. It's kind of like the, uh, the Cirque du Soleil approach to filmmaking is like, Holy shit. How did they pull that off? Right. Which is, it does lend itself there. There's a, just such a fine line between something being, uh, conspicuously impressive in something being extremely immersive and ideally you want it to be both you want it to feel as though you're part of this fictional realm that nonetheless has all of these uh, astounding events or whatever taking place but they are inherently intention because in reality, you don't have, I'm looking at my list here, you don't have uh, interdimensional uh, demons that kill uh, everybody who looks at them, so you have to wear a mask and get in your bird box. Go but you have river, intersectional river. demons, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's no shortage of uh, intersectional demons. Well, that's sort of an oxymoron, right? I mean, I don't know why you had to reiterate yourself twice there, but... Right, you know, right. intersectional story. And I think that in hindsight, a lot of the, you know, the year that uh, I'm going to keep harping on this, the year that uh, the King's Speech won, uh, the Social Network uh, came out and was, and I think a lot of people at the time, I remember, I thought that was not speech well. I, I enjoyed it at the time. I, well, I mean, a lot of people thought the Social well. Network had a bigger shot of winning. And in hindsight, you know, that film probably is more poignant uh, and, you know, more interesting than the King's Speech, 
just as a kind of character study of, you know, they're basically both character studies. One is a character study of kind of a wimpy English monarch. And the other is, is a character study of a Harvard graduate student who, you know, has an undergraduate, more, uh, which we didn't graduate than, uh, than, than, a, I don't know, a traditional monarch would. Yeah, but it's a fake. I mean, they're all fake character studies, but it's it's particularly grating when it's a contemporary figure and the dimensions that they choose to focus on are just laughably fictitious. What like the whole angle of Zuckerberg? Uh, so flashes, yeah, the, the whole like, like the whole like oh like the whole nerd archetype thing in that movie is frankly complete bullshit. Like, if you've... Mark Zuckerberg is extremely charismatic in person. He does not have a problem convincing mm. people of stuff. Okay. Maybe in Silicon Valley. I mean, but... the fact that he married what's-his-name is inexplicable. And then the whole, like, Xi Jinping... Like, the, the, you know, the best anecdote ever, requesting that Xi Jinping name his firstborn, which Xi Jinping uh, declined... It's like, oosh, can really, uh, hmm, I don't know if the, the whole Chinese market thing is going to really uh, work out there. But <laughs> setting setting up like this, uh, setting up this, uh, the existence of Facebook and attributing it to some like weird Freudian dynamic is a very, it's a very Jewish thing to do. Um, it's also just, I think, wrong there's you know a lot of ways to look at facebook but you know the quest of a lonely man to have a few friends is just such incredible bullshit that's not what this whole thing about that it that movie i can say i it managed to make something i did not care about at all somewhat entertaining and that's a testament to david fincher as a director uh, other than that i couldn't really care too much about that but to what you were saying earlier about movies being able to transport you uh, into a place in time i think that movie done right this is one of the most powerful aspects about film and one of my film nominees for the year which i had never seen before the leopard have you guys seen this by it was a Ooh, film in the yeah. 1963 i believe the italian Bert uh, lancaster Yes, is by Visconti, and Burt Lancaster played the title role, and it's a really beautiful film. It's very long, but I recommend it to everyone, you know, to watch it and once allow yourself to be absorbed in it because it tells a very unique story about a the decline of an old aristocracy and how it's being absorbed into the times, and that was easily going to be my my favorite film of the year but unfortunately it came out in 1963 that i had neglected to see before but a friend of mine recommended to me was river's edge with crispin glover have you guys seen this film i just no. remember him from back to the future other than that i've never seen yeah, him i, I movie. highly recommend river's edge it uh it's a it's a film set in sort of a it's based loosely off of some real events that took place around uh, a murder in high school. But the way that the, the, the primary 
point of the film is the way that the characters are responding to what took place. And it's sort of steeped in this angsty nihilism that uh, actually holds up well. It's not it's not the cliched kind. It, it, it works very well. Keanu Reeves, of course, is the other is the, the lead in the film. And it's one of his better roles, to be honest. Yeah, we're all we're all pro Keanu here, I believe. Absolutely. I saw I'm going to kind of oscillate uh, in in time and how uh, good uh, things were, because every so often you find, uh, you know, things on your uh, your list and you just kind of uh, Jesus take the wheel. You see if they're any good. It's like, huh, this is from 1977 or whatever. It's like, well, probably got it for some reason, put it on my list for some reason. There's a, uh, I guess we'll do recent and bad. Uh, recent and kind of interesting, but kind of weird. Uh, the standoff at Sparrow Creek. I could not follow this movie. It's I got it's, about 40 minutes into that. Yeah, uh, it's it's an interesting premise. It's basically uh, this militia holds up for Rahoa, uh, and then they realize, I guess, uh, over time, it's I'm not kidding about the continuity problems in this movie. It's just incredibly difficult to follow. Um, but at some point, they realize that uh, things are not what they seem. Um, it's it it kind of sucked, honestly. But the premise was interesting enough that I was like, okay. Let's, Check this out. Well, out of all the films that were I'm gonna nominated have to for the Oscars last night, what was the film most deserving of uh, Oscar attention, in your guys' opinion? What were the nominees for Let's Best see, Picture? Uh, well, did you guys see Joker? I think that was up. Oh, Not I yet. I didn't see it. No. Well, you didn't see it, Nick? On a time in Hollywood. Time. I didn't actually see that, but Nick saw that. No. Yeah, I thought he did, too. I, 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 oh, I could talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, actually. I I uh, actually enjoyed it. I, I thought it was the best Quentin Tarantino movie since... Uh, Jackie Brown. <laughs> it, the last one I liked. <laughs> it, I, yeah, well, the last one I liked was Kill Bill 2. And okay. I actually enjoyed that movie. It it showed I, there was a lot of little details in that movie that I thought were really well done, and I thought Leonardo DiCaprio gave probably one of his best performances ever. Yeah, he's never uh, won his, an there's award. There's a scene in that movie where he's one. Go, go ahead, yeah he he's talking to this little girl, uh, this little child actor, and I, I thought that was one of the better scenes I've uh, that Tarantino has put together. That. It's kind of this like meta level, like he's an actor acting and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it, it worked really well. It was actually an emotionally effective scene, which is, I think, rare for Tarantino. The Manson stuff uh, was pretty dumb overall. It was, it was bad. And it also failed to explore the, I mean, it showed a little bit, showed like, you know, Steve McQueen and James Irving at a party together. But it didn't show the extent to which that Hollywood scene was uh, entangled with with the Manson people, which is far more than uh, most of the mainstream accounts will really get in. I don't know if this was nominated, but I enjoyed Ford versus Ferrari quite a bit, and this is one of the few movies I've actually gone to the theater to see, and that's it's been a long time. So I, I, I you know, 
Actually, I think I think uh, a family member of mine tried to convince me to go see that, and uh, I ended up seeing 1917 instead. But I mean, if you're giving it a recommend, then I might actually uh, might sit down and watch it. I heard if, it was if good. You're into, but I didn't if you're into know cars, if time. you're into sort of guy movies, I mean, it's it's not it's not politically correct, or it's not a trying to be either. It's just from an era where that wasn't really even an issue. And so it's refreshing from that standpoint, but it's also refreshing from a standpoint to see like a male archetype actually trying to be, and it's a true story, trying to accomplish something as opposed to being force fed some uh, Supergirl Batwoman thing. Like, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's just that the Hollywood production today is, is laughable compared to some of the stuff in the past and what was actually being done in the past. I so did I enjoyed not, it from that re, re, you know point of view. I, I did not see that. But I did rewatch this year a movie that came out a few years ago, uh, directed by Ron Howard. That was actually good. Uh, it was uh, Rush, which is the story of the rivalry between uh, Nicky Lauda and James Hunt. Huh. You guys are in the yeah, that was yeah, yeah, yeah. Premium Lauda, right? Rush. Yeah. That movie kicks ass. See Premium Rush. It's great. Well, Ron Howard is a pretty good director, from what I've heard. I, I haven't. I don't think I've seen too many of his movies, but. I don't remember All of 13. Uh, his movies wait, are usually wait, pretty wait, flat. Wait, 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 Hank. Really? Premium Rush, the, the like Joseph Gordon-Levitt biking Yeah, movie? the Bicycle Courier movie. Get the fuck out, man. That movie was so good. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. The, movie, the whole movie is about like a Schwinn bicycle guy. I mean... Yeah, it's a bicycle courier who delivers a package he's not supposed to and then has to flee the law. It's great. No, it's great. I mean, it's like such a simple premise, but I mean, if you want to talk about um, like movies that clearly come from somewhere, it's like we got all these bicycle stuntmen. It's like, ah, shit. I know like six of these guys. We should make a movie. And then they make a movie. And it's like, all right, I see what happened here. But it's it's so well executed. And uh you know there's just kind of a real deficit of uh i mean like you you picture the kind of environment that manhattan where the movie is set of course like it's impossible to have a realistic car chase anymore in manhattan like i, I, I think truth i mean i'm like, there was a there was a oh. i don't know if you guys watched the series bosch on amazon prime um, but there are several car chases the, the in the series, <laughs> and they all take place in Los Angeles. And I, I recognize the streets that they're on. And I'm just thinking like that time of day, you couldn't go more than 15 miles an hour. Like there's not going to be a car chase there anymore, but on a bicycle. Right, it's like it's it's actually you actually could do it on a bicycle in some yeah. sense. And, I mean, you know, these things can go pretty fast. You're darting through side streets. But what's chasing him? Cars? Because that's not believable. Like I didn't see the movie, but uh, I'm assuming... at one point I think there's other bicycle people. The cops <laughs> are looking for him. It, it's it's like a it's a good it's a good it's like oh you know it, it holds up. I was not expecting to like it either. What, like, okay, you know, what's the verdict on Joseph like Gordon Levitt? Brick, uh, yeah, yeah. Brick was a What's that about? It's uh, it's a high school. That noir. was uh, a film noir set in high school. Yeah. 
Isn't it, isn't the guy who directed that the guy who uh, basically killed Star Wars? Yeah, Brian Johnson. Uh, yeah, he, he's <laughs> yeah, all right. Brian he's Johnson. done some good work. Though, well, yeah, it's like whenever they put you, it's well, like he did. Uh, he did Brick. Yeah, like Hollywood brick does the this thing now. Like, what, what it's like the... you seem like you're competent. Here's yeah. five hundred million dollars, and right. also this gang of 12 producers is going to be essentially telling you what to do. Have fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Red Letter Media has talked about this a lot, this sort of indie career to uh, blockbuster pipeline that's popular now. And it's resulting in a lot of films that are actually flopping or just totally uh, you know, in clusterfuck mode. And often it's because to take a, a director with a sense of scale of making a film that's like worth $12 million and then saying, here's $200 million, here's 3,000 crew, here's, you know, four international shooting locations, here's when it has to be, has to be done by, we've already set the release date, here's when you have to have the script in, like, you know. And by the way, you also get essentially zero creative control. Right, I mean, it completely overwhelms a lot of yeah. directors, so they often result in very bad movies. Uh, several of the latest you, Star Wars films that, have, have been that, kind of foiled by this, where it's indie directors, uh, you know, being asked to take on a big Star Wars two hundred million dollar movie and totally shitting the bed because they have no idea how to manage a project like that. Ah, uh, Nick, yeah, I have a question for you. When you have a director that has, yeah. So, uh, are you familiar with a film, The Brotherhood of the Bell? Oh, uh, I'm familiar with a book about uh, the research into bizarre technologies. Yeah, I know the brother. No, 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 no. This is different. This is not the uh, the like the bell device thing, that Nazi uh, Nazi UFO thing or whatever. This is. I think it's on YouTube uh, for free. Um, it's about essentially. It dates to 1970. And it's essentially about a uh, gigantic uh, quasi-Masonic uh, conspiracy uh, encompassing a, a network of uh, college fraternities. It's uh, it's pretty good uh, if you're if you're into kind of uh, movies that involve occult uh, conspiracies. It's almost like a uh, Eyes Wide Shut uh, precursor. Oh. This sounds interesting. I did this year, and did not come out this year. But I watched Under the Silver Lake. Ah, yes. And that's a film that actually gets into some stuff that we have discussed on the program regarding it's. It's one of those movies that's actually about Hollywood in a way that you know, like Mulholland Drive or something that gets into some things that are actually interesting. It almost is like a Dutch film in, in more ways than just that. It has a lot of very funny aspects to it. I, I thought it was a, a good movie. Uh, Andrew Garfield is, is good in it. Uh, the other the other film I wanted to mention that is, is uh, actually, as I look now, because Han said this, is, it appears that it actually won Best Picture, which is Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. And I, I'm shocked, actually. I, first of all, didn't realize Korean films were allowed to win Best Picture. And this must be the first Best Picture that is in a long time and it was great i'm a fan of Bung, but his film okja was pretty fucking bad and snowpiercer uh that was also pretty bad 
It has disagree. Hard disagree. Snowpiercer was weird and competent. That's the only things I ask for. It's like just just was do, do something interesting and just stick to the concept and do a decent job. Just be interesting. It was enjoyable uh, to a point. There were there were things about Snowpiercer. Oakjaw was much worse than Snowpiercer, but recent films have not been very good. However, Parasite was excellent, and it won apparently, which I just looked up and. I'm surprised to see that. We're talking about parasites. Uh, Return of the Living Dead. This is uh, this oh, that is movie, the movie's great. It's it's really good. Uh, if you at all, I mean, I think the the zombie genre it's kind of been analyzed and meta analyzed to death. But this movie from 1985 is actually. Uh, you know, if you just released it today, uh, people would talk about how interestingly it subverts all of these, you know, zombie tropes, um, stuff about, you know, oh, you gotta shoot him in the head. You, know, shoot him, you gotta, you gotta kill the head. And that, cause that reminds yeah. me, I watched Jim Jarmusch's new film, uh, The Dead Don't Die. And I thought about that. I was watching it because it does, it does some. I, I like Jim Jarmusch. I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, was I could get, get a little tired at the end. Yeah, it's like the whole movie is just waiting for him to take a nap. So why do you guys think that the zombie genre was so big for so long and then kind of petered out? Why were so many people interested in zombies to begin with? Uh, because people... So a zombie movie is fundamentally about... It's, it's the 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 super stimulus version of what probably what like two thirds of Hollywood movies are, which is an ordinary person is put in an extraordinary circumstance that causes them to self-actualize and zombie movies uh, do just like, you know, a candy bar is more delicious than anything that could possibly come out of a tree. It's like a zombie movie uh, is that essential meta premise plus it's like well and also uh, you don't have to worry about your existing social relationships and you probably get to kill a lot of those people you know double kill or whatever because you know they've become zombified and also society has decayed so you get to hit the old uh, reset button on that and reforge a new society and from a you know, a production standpoint, it really lets you go whatever way you want with the actual movie because you have complete control over the premise. You can make all these people do all this stuff. You can, you know, decide that you're going to make an action movie or a horror movie or, you know, quote unquote, subvert it and make a comedy or whatever the fuck. It's just, it's, uh, it's like the fantasy of uh, flexibility and uh, you know be- becoming who you are. I guess uh, just general fraying of society, lack of trust amongst your neighbors, uh, existential dread, lack of trust in the system because usually there's a system breakdown, 
and you're left to fend for your own devices. So I think, you know, just look around you. I mean, this is the state of the, the American empire it, it and society as a whole. And the closer that actually comes. <laughs> well, yeah. And, but the question also is like, why is that petered out? I think it's just been overdone. I think there's just been a surplus of this stuff. And so I think people are getting a little bit bored with it. And also the longer you do this stuff about impending doom, it doesn't happen. It's less scary and interesting, I think. But um, you know, that's well, all I think. And I'll, I'll, that's I'll what close. I like about the dead dies because it was the kind of logical end of zombie movies, where you know you can only set so many zombie movies in contemporary America and not have to deal with the fact that contemporary America is saturated in zombie movies. So all the people in the movie would have seen a ton of zombie movies. And that's why you get the like, even, even that uh, dead don't die. It's like, well, you just kill the head. Of, like, do yeah, we call them zombies? Yeah. Like yeah. that, that I just seen that so True. many times. Train to Busan is, uh, you know, for doing the, the synthesis of the Korean movies and the zombie movies, train to Busan is uh, thoroughly enjoyable. It's, it's good. Yeah. That movie at the end, though, the, the end where it's like, why don't you just push the zombie off of the train car? That that, that really pissed me yeah. off. But I will give I will give a recommendation to a movie that I think transcends this. It transcends the vampire and the zombie genre. And I I have not really met anyone who's seen this in recent years. And it's called The Revenant. Isn't that DiCaprio's movie? Uh, no, that's on. Yeah. Hell, did I see that? I thought that was him surviving in the wilderness. I think it's Australian. It, that's it's also called that. Oh, um, <laughs> oh, it's not called the Revenant. It's called Revenant. Revenant. Is, the, is that the, uh, is that Revenant. the like Australian Aborigine uh, horror movie thing where like they've uh, there's like a, a sawed off twelve gauge that keeps on coming up? Uh, no. It, it came out in 2009 and it's a it's kind of a comedy but it's it's also not it's it's that perfect sweet spot of dark comedy that I, that I like most so I, I if you haven't seen it I do really recommend that movie let, let me know what you think if you, if you get around to watching it and where can people find you Nick these days I believe your Twitter is something uh, to, to uh, the... I am sort of back on Twitter you're you're skiing yeah, in Iran uh, at the moment, from what I gather. A... Yes, I've spent the winter doing nothing but skiing, and uh, my Twitter is uh, back online. And so, I guess if people need to get a hold of me, they can do it there. So, let me ask you guys this: Where do you see Hollywood going forward? Uh, it appears that this was the lowest rated Oscars uh, of all time. It's set yet another all time low. Uh, people just don't care anymore. Um, well, box, you know, box office attendance is declining. Ticket prices keep going up. People uh, are more interested in watching uh, feature length films from the comfort of their own home. You know, where does Hollywood go from here? Is it going to kind of bifurcate and? lose its you know dominant position or, or well, the studio is going to be around i'll forever. tell you this when i was driving oh. home uh last night i drove by a theater and it said bad boys seven on it 
And I, I wasn't aware there was a Bad Boys 3, 4, 5, 6, or 7. Um, and it, this seems to be what they're doing. And I think it has something to do with the fact that the global audience is the lowest common denominator and the fact that people like us don't go to the theater anymore. I don't know who's going to the theater, but I think where the content originality is going is digital streaming and places like even YouTube, uh, yeah. although that's a little bit tenuous these days. But I think people are just going to be looking for their own niche more and more. I think it'll yeah, be the opposite. It used to be a stigma for major film actors to participate in anything resembling a television series, and it no longer is. It's, it's now... Uh, in fact, probably a good career move for a lot of these guys to be moving over to the 10-hour miniseries type uh, Netflix you know, specials or whatever. Yeah, like the Sherlock series, I think is absolutely brilliant. And it's um, you never see anything like that. that. That's cerebral in a movie theater. And you have to find that on streaming services um, or be in Britain, I guess. But... Yeah, yeah I think that the theater. streaming is definitely like if you add up the number of people that are paying their uh, how much is Netflix like 20 bucks a month? I think it's more. It's about 10 bucks a month. What are you talking about? Really? I don't know. Yeah. Netflix is wow. cheap. Yeah. Well, okay. I so mean, they it, don't they it, don't pay for the It's like if you add up all of <laughs> the <Adam. laughs> Yeah, sorry. If you add up all the, I mean, there's there's the there's Netflix, there's the Amazon one, which you can bundle up with your Prime. All of the networks have their own. There's the Disney Plus. There's the Apple thing. Like, but even the the quote unquote cheap ones, I mean, there's most people I think don't go to the movies once a month, and if you just, you know, if you go to a movie theater, there's a lot of overhead associated with that because, you know, the movie theater has staff, they have uh, rent, you know, they've got overhead from the, their, you know, their 10-year-old Mike and Ikes that they have in the, uh, in the lobby or whatever. So if you're Netflix and you're collecting nine bucks a month with zero uh overhead uh from that i mean i know of course they they have to keep their stuff running too but on the delivery end there's there's nothing compared to the theater itself okay you know it's their their cost of providing the bandwidth which is marginal like that that gives them more money to play with assuming america still exists in 20 years i think i could imagine situation where you have sort of a revival of theaters in some way you know as kind of like a retro where millennials and gen x people can go to relive well, their childhood well, hipsters okay, do so that, that, actually that because like if you look at what disney has been doing with their acquisition of uh all the uh, the fox studio stuff they've been doing this uh vault model i mean disney is just this colossus slowly strangling every potential source of uh alternate uh entertainment media whatever you want to call it um but they've been doing this thing where they just don't release old movies for showings in theaters so if you want to see 
um, you know, God forbid, like the song of the South. But, uh, you know, if you want to see, I don't know, Cinderella or something or Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, as a theater owner, you literally cannot put that out. It's it's always associated with some sort of a uh, reissue, uh, like some new merchandise line, some opening of some theme park or something. But it's uh, the, you know, the quote unquote long tail, uh, which was supposed to be one of the advantages of having uh, some of these new digital uh, formats. They're trying to make sure that the long tail doesn't really exist and they are always excited for uh, excited for next content uh, production. So, I mean, I don't think that kind of I mean, their goal, as I see it on a meta level is to prevent the creation of any sort of organic American culture where, uh, the same sort of, uh, myths, um, the same sort of stories become cultural touchstones that are actually passed down, uh, from uh, one generation to the next. And instead you have an endless cycle of here's your content and you're going to like it. And I think that, uh, you know, that's obviously extremely toxic. Uh, and uh, I don't think that they'll actually get away with it because it's it's too difficult to prevent uh, the formation of culture. It's an instinctual thing that people do. But certainly, you know, they can, uh, they can make sure that come hell or high water, every year and a half, there's a new Star Wars movie. Every year and a half, there's a new Fast and Furious movie. And for the lowest common denominator that we were talking about, that becomes their supplanted culture. It's about family. They yeah, you would need times film, in the last basically film music, right? And in order to to get, get you would have to get some prints of the actual film. Uh, I've been to place. I've been to a few film museums. That, that do archive films and you can go and watch. I've seen, for example, Eraser Head in theaters as well, you know, uh, <laughs> like Jewels at Gem and uh, movies like that. I, I have I have seen these in theaters, but they're at a, it's at a you know basically at a film museum, and that's not really a viable commercial model. Obviously, it's going to be something that ideally would have state support. And of course, you have a state that has the same culture ends as Hollywood itself. Right, you be do like compulsory licensing for films the same way that you do compulsory licensing for uh, for radio. But I mean, that's just not going to happen because of the giant gold figurine and Harvey Weinstein and uh, Jeff Epstein, et cetera, et cetera. Didn't uh, Ricky Gervais, however you say his name, Gervais, um, didn't he roast? all of the Hollywood people about supporting Harvey Weinstein. Uh, and he, I don't think this is the Oscars. This is some other award show, but did yeah, you guys catch that? that? Yeah. I don't see that as like being particularly cutting. I think if anything, it, uh, it hardens the flex. What do you mean? Hardens uh, the flex. It's not, it's not like he's calling out particular people. Right, and it's not exactly something that is controversial to criticize Harvey Weinstein, but the fact that he cited the people in the audience as complicit, I think, is sort of gutsy. I mean, he he didn't do it in that 
subtle or clever right. of a it's, way. It was kind of it, kind of a cr- no, criticism. It's, so it's almost this is a this is a thing. It's like look at what we can get away with as you're literally standing under the shadow of your golden icon. Oh, I see what you mean by and, flex. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree, but I, I understand what you mean. Yeah. It, you mentioned uh, earlier. You mentioned the series Sherlock, and yeah. I apologize for my delay. I it's it's just a problem I have with this program when it first came out, and I stopped watching when he executed Mads Mikkelsen because they basically just no, ruined Mads the Mikkelsen's entire brother. character. Mads Mikkelsen's brother. Sorry, yeah, and um, because the whole thing with that is Mikkelsen outsmarts him. He gets the best. of of him yeah and so what sherlock does is he just executes him and has his brother in mi6 bail him out well you're giving some of it away but i i think they've done a commendable job at some pretty clever writing i mean yes you may disagree with a few points here and there but uh overall i would say it's one of the better series i've seen in a long time that's come out in modern era television definitely better Lucy Liu as Watson. Yeah, definitely. You saw that. That was shit. No, I avoided that like the plague or the coronavirus. Well, that's a good segue to uh, our next topic. What is the current status of the uh, the beer virus sweeping China? Fucking nobody knows. So, So somebody in our circles posted this and I was very skeptical because it came from an anonymous source and I don't know how they got the data because I thought all this stuff was closed off. But I saw a second confirmation of this particular data point that I think is somewhat uh, interesting at the very least, if not damning. Uh, But you could debate if it's even damning. But anyway, the the point is there's a lot of uh, sulfur dioxide being released into the atmosphere around Wuhan. According to, I guess, satellite imagery where they're sort of picking up the, I guess, the fluctuation and the wavelength of light going through that part of the atmosphere. I don't really know how they pick up on it or how normies have access to this even, frankly. But assuming that's true, it seems like they're cremating a lot of people. And the amount of sulfur dioxide would seem to indicate, assuming there's no other source other than cremation, is that there's been about 50,000 people cremated. Um, I mean, I've seen other uh, hypotheses from there that because of transportation difficulties, they started burning a different kind of coal. In yeah, you don't know. It's just an ex- estimate. And But here's what I wanted to say, though. It's like, okay, guys, what do you want to do? Just not do anything and let everybody walk around who has the disease? I mean, you've got to attack this thing, you know, and I I don't want people to be cruel but I, I sort of understand where the Chinese government is coming from, and basically they're, they're pulling out all the stops. I mean, they have a huge yeah, country. Yeah, but I mean, they're, they're even going probably a little bit beyond that in a way that uh, accelerates the spread of the virus, because once the, yeah, okay. once the command comes down from on high to do something, right, right. you're, you're going to do something, even if that's not the correct thing. Yeah, you do need to be prudent about it and not uh, just knee-jerk. I get that. Um, but assuming these people are epidemiologists directing things, which is right. probably not I the case. I wouldn't assume probably, that. It's probably like, a bunch it, of technocrats. It sounds like the there's a lot of yeah. local officials at this point yeah. freaking out yeah. and telling their subordinates to freak out. Yeah, and definitely. then you have them just 
essentially grabbing randos uh, who might or might not have seasonal colds. No way to test because uh, I, I shilled this last episode, but I'll continue shilling uh, John Stokes and the prepared. They've been doing excellent reporting roundups on this, uh, but there's uh, some major problems with the Chinese uh, testing procedures. Their, uh, their ability to actually test for coronavirus is uh uh, non-existent as far as anyone can tell like their uh, their pcr machinery just doesn't work they're not following procedures it's unclear what exactly is going wrong but they're claiming that they just don't have the ability uh to test for the actual strain that they've identified so if you're just basing it purely off of uh you know, symptoms that may or may not be there in a context where everybody's freaking out and nobody actually wants to get too close uh, to the person that you're uh, suspecting or maybe, you know, somebody has a grudge with that person, who knows, and you're just throwing them all in the same cramped facility for quote-unquote quarantine, you can see how that could accelerate the uh, spread of things. The same thing if you have a a cruise ship docking in New Jersey and you're just wanding everybody uselessly TSA style and just releasing them into your industrial heartland. It's, uh, I don't know. It, it, the, the thing that is concerning to me is that the error bounds, uh, seem to be growing over time. People seem to be less confident of what exactly the hell is going on in China. I saw so many people trying to establish if and how many, uh, companies and workers were open for business in different parts of China. Now that their, uh, extended lunar new year holiday is over and it was impossible to get hard numbers, uh, there were very few uh, kind of um, correlative uh, indications um, of uh, kind of day-by-day -day industrial activity. Like, I couldn't find anybody that was looking at uh, things like satellite road traffic, which I know that there are live data sets that compile live road traffic data. So it's it's concerning to me that uh, nobody seems to argue that there's fewer infections day by day. Everybody agrees that it is still growing. There are some people who claim that the uh, curve has been shifted and that the rate of increase is going down because of these extremely aggressive quarantine procedures. But there are a lot of reasons to believe that a lot of this data is just outright fake. And uh, it, uh, it doesn't seem to add up uh, with the actions of the Chinese government when they have essentially shut down their entire economy. It's unclear when or if they're uh, sort of planning on bouncing back. Uh, to do that in a situation where it is more or less totally under control. So, I don't know, I'm, I'm very apprehensive about the, uh, the whole... Uh, situation and there seems to be a marked lack of uh, guidance or investigation by uh, kind of Western governmental sources. Like it, it seems like the U.S. Center for Disease Control is uh, aggressively not uh, 
questioning the the Chinese numbers or the description of kind of the worldwide epidemiology of this. Well, That's just my I don't quite know what's going on there, but I would assume that some of it is they better be safe than sorry kind of thing. And so they don't want to be accused of being underprepared. And so I think they, and you see this, uh, I, well, I don't, we haven't really had this in a long time, but you guys remember after 9-11, they had those like condition alert color things. <laughs> like it's, 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 it's purple guys. Like. I was scratching your head, like, what does that mean? Like, yeah. And then, uh, but they, they stopped doing that after a while. But I think they, it was sort of the government felt like they better do something. Otherwise, they would get criticized. So I don't know if that's part of what motivates the CDC. Did something. I mean, shutting down air traffic to China would be something. They haven't done that. (laughs) Well, that's the, like, if you're just, if you're like, oh yeah, we're pretty sure that there's somewhere between a five and maybe like fourteen, maybe longer day incubation period with asymptomatic transmission, except for the there was one publication that claimed that the asymptomatic uh, transmission was a fake, and that uh, in reality they they did have symptoms and they just recorded the chart wrong and they got the dates mixed up. Like, I mean, regardless of these, it, it kind of seems like, you know, having incompetent personnel that can't even catch people smuggling literal bombs onto airplanes and they're, you know, just kind of waving their infrared thermometer generally over the crowd that that might not be totally effective. Like what, what's the payoff from these people coming here from like a literal yeah. plague? Zone? Like we figured this out in 1400. Well, I mean, I remember I brought this up uh, somewhat indirectly during uh, the discussion about this virus uh, for the whole show a couple episodes ago. And they, um, the criticism Trump, candidate Trump, I think it was candidate Trump. I don't know. He might have been just uh, citizen Trump at the time. But it was 2014, 2015 when Ebola, I think, sort of broke around the news. I think it may have been before he actually started running. But I remember him tweeting about it. And he kept um, tweeting, quote, stop the flights, you know, all caps, exclamation point, exclamation point. And it's interesting that that has not even been brought up once uh, about the Chinese. Now, Obviously, flights from Zaire is somewhat less important than flights from the largest trading partner the U.S. has, or the third or something like that. But Canada, I think, and Mexico are probably the tops. But, yeah, but China's I mean, huge. The, so. the, the logical argument here is to say, what does what, what do passenger planes have to do with international trade? I mean, the majority of that oh, trade it's huge. is huge. Business trips. I mean, come on. Like, deals are going to be I mean, that, that's well, a, most that's of a, that is like. I'm going to go and visit grandma. Yeah. Yeah, most of it. That's but not, that's if you, not if you want to attach a dollar value to it, All the vital stuff it, that we get out of higher. China is done with a cargo plane or by freight. Like, it's not... Well, it, most like most I, of it's container ships. I, I understand that at a certain point, you've got to actually send a guy to go and look at the factory. Yeah. But it's like, okay, so let's say that you actually... You know, you massively tightened up your visa requirements. It's like, okay, what business endeavor are you engaged in? Like yeah, going just... to see grandma, it's like mm. you 
take take a pass, like wait a couple months, she'll still be there probably no, I, 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 for I everything else guys. this video conference. I agree with you guys. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate and try to explain why there hasn't even been a discussion of that. I can only imagine that's the reason. It's some business stuff. So, um, you know, you guys give me the, uh, the the actual reason if there's something else. I mean, I think that the part of the reason has to do with the fact that it would be very, very difficult for China to then navigate its way out of this economically. It would be sort of the, a signal to the markets that the situation in China is very dire and that if the United States feels as though it can no longer accept uh, as a matter of, uh, you know, writ, legal writ, that it can no longer accept passengers to and from China. I think that that would uh, signal to just about everyone in the business community and at large that uh, uh, China is a dangerous country and it does not show any signs of improving anytime soon. In fact, it's probably going to get much worse and that would be very damaging to the Chinese economy and maybe the world economy. If you're looking at it from the argument of maintaining stability, I can understand why you would not you would try and downplay how bad things are actually in China. I mean, today uh, Xi came out for the first time in almost a week. He hasn't he's been like a wall, and he randomly appears in Beijing. Um, wearing a mask, and he walks around for a few hours, and then he bails. Okay, but like, I I saw some stills from that. I didn't see the whole thing, but he was wearing a mask, right? Right. So, what, like, why do people think that it was actually him? Right. I mean, that would be the obvious thing, right? Yeah, you think he'd give? I, mean, I don't know how the Chinese uh, government really works vis-a-vis their people, but you think the Chinese premier would be giving a public address in a crisis like this. So I well, that's why people were spooked that right. he hasn't been seen in several days. Is that I mean, the uh, story you know, that they were holed up on some island somewhere? Yeah. When I talk I mean, about a good uh, good zombie movie premise, it's like ah, the cabinet has to fight its way off the island. Is a pretty good one. What was that uh, Japanese one? That was based on an island. It's like, what was that? Nick probably knows what that was. Battle Royale. That's it. That's That was a good one. I enjoyed that. Good movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems more and more like um, the political situation in China has unraveled. There's lots of footage and images and descriptions from dissidents within China describing a uh, fracturing of Chinese regions where uh towns and small cities uh and sort of hamlets if you will uh within certain regions of china have basically secluded themselves off from the rest of the population uh, are not allowing people to leave or to enter um there was footage from fujian of people basically getting into a uh, a massive brawl with uh, the quarantine people and riot police, um, throwing objects at them, trashing their cars. It seems like the, the internal population is under the uh, belief that if you go into quarantine, you will die. That it's, uh, it's assured that could the quarantine zones that Chinese have set up are basically death sentences. One yeah, well, or <laughs> a lot of those uh, 
the temporary trailers that they had for uh, quarantine purposes. It's like, yeah, that's a, it's a cool quarantine facility with the bars on the outside of the windows. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems it seems obvious that um, one of two things is going on, or two things are actually going on. Uh, the virus is incredibly contagious and incredibly deadly, and their solution thus far has been to corral all infected into these quarantine zones and any suspected infected and thereby try and prevent it from reaching the wider population, uh, those people are assuredly going to die. Uh, Number two, they're most likely using this as a pretext for removing certain people within their population who have been troublesome. I think that's almost like certain, but there's very many of those people. Show up at at your door if you've been a longtime dissident and accuse you of having a fever and then drag you off to a quarantine zone where they just shoot you or they purposefully put you in a place where they know you'll contract the virus and then refuse to give you help. You know, I, I, there have been several people who have um, several longtime dissidents who have been posting about the virus who have vanished, uh, including what the doctor who originally got the word out to the West. Uh, he's dead. He must he, you know, allegedly died of the virus somehow, which is very weird. Um, but there have been several Chinese netizens who have disappeared. Uh, one of them posted a video online of his disappearance, basically. And, uh, they, you know, they came to his door and said, uh, we heard that you have flu-like symptoms. We heard you have a fever. We just want to check. We just want to help you. Uh, and then they, you know, come in through the door and grab you and take you away to wherever. Um, so it seems like there, whether or not this was, you know, engineered to happen this way, I think that they're using it as a, uh, sort of a, when life gives you lemons scenario and, uh, deciding that it's, it's a good time to take out most of the, uh, the troublesome members of society. I think that's almost certainly true, but I don't think that that has any sort of real, like they wouldn't keep this crisis situation going purely to deal with i mean what like ten thousand people tops like it's it it doesn't seem like the juice would be worth the squeeze in that circumstance it's uh it seems like it's targets of opportunity at best or at worst depending on uh, how you look at it well and i think it's it's becoming very obvious that they simply are unable to get a handle on it. And so, you know, the the solution for China has been to basically place 440 million people on lockdown, uh, which is an insane statistic. Um, You know, there's this sort of, uh, you know, we've said this before, the Chinese lie all the time but the thing about the Chinese is that they're very bad liars. Um, they they can't stop lying. They're one of the most mendacious peoples to have ever walked the earth, but they're bad at it. Uh, and so you can tell when they're lying very easily because they quickly do something very stupid that is obviously in contradiction to the lie. So the 
main piece of global Chinese propaganda right now is that this is no worse than the sort of standard North American flu season uh, that, you know, hits the country every year or sometimes every couple of years is a bad flu season. Um, and a lot of old people get carried away and, you know, some young people too. Um, but the next day, they'll place another 20, 30 million people on complete lockdown. And then there will be footage emerging of them welding people inside their own apartments. Which doesn't make any sense. I mean, right. it's like, so I think there's definitely an element of this that there's clearly some spookery going on with uh, either American or, uh, you know, the uh, uh, some of the Hong Kong or Taiwan security services, maybe the Koreans, who, the, who knows at this point. But... Uh, Welding a door shut does not keep somebody inside of a apartment block. That that does not work. Like you, that does not work. Like welds are really easy. Like you can put a solid slab of steel, which is not even what was illustrated in those pictures there, and it is remarkably difficult with screwdrivers and shit to get out of that apartment complex. So, like, I assume that was probably something else. Um, for instance, uh, the hypothesis that I heard was uh, what seems to be happening in a lot of these places is that, um, you know, you put a couple of cops or whatever the local equivalent is uh, at some entrance and you basically sign out and then sign back in um, to cut down on traffic. Um, and you get to, you know, leave your, uh, leave your apartment, you know, like twice a week or whatever. And it helps for manpower considerations because bear in mind, like a lot of these cops are probably sick. A lot of their army is probably sick. Uh, you know, certainly that would not be publicized at all. That would be considered an extremely closely guarded state secret. But to cut down on manpower requirements, it's like, okay, well, there's four entrances uh, to this apartment complex. We want to leave one completely open, and essentially the rest are a slightly stronger version of the honor system. That's the only thing that really, yeah, like you, like just break a window four stories up. Right. Like you've, like you it would be stupid to even do that as a cosmetic uh, thing so, if you actually intended to keep people So I'm, in. I'm scrolling through kind of the, I don't know what you'd call it these days, uh, fake news or Western propaganda, Western Pravda, uh, as Unz would call it, uh, American Pravda. But the uh, it's weird because like the deep state, I guess, is willing to jump on the anti or the at least the critical China train. And it's weird to me because you see guys like Bloomberg who has to be at some level connected with whatever we're calling the deep state. Uh, he's a billionaire. Yeah, he, terminal, like, he's, he's got terminals that he was right. uh, confirmed to be spying on uh, uh, various people right. uh, for uh, like quote unquote journalistic purposes. 
But like those Bloomberg terminals are in every financial hub. Like if you don't think that those are a major target for mm-hmm. uh, penetration, yeah. that's that would be absurd. Well, that, that but that's a separate thing. What I'm talking about is internally and through his uh, personal. I'm saying you would have every incentive to be complicit in that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so yeah. So you're supporting what I'm getting at is that guys like him will come out, and this is one of the interviews he did. God knows who, where, but it was pulled up in the Oppo research when he announced he was running that he's very pro-China, and I'm just surprised to see places like you know Time Magazine come out and basically question the top-down authoritarian approach of China uh, in this uh, very dangerous uh, scenario and question if this is going to be the, the Chinese century, as they put it. Um, I, I don't know what this means. I mean, like, what is, the, what, is the deep, what is the State Department doing right now? Like, are they, are they anti-China? I guess they're anti-China. They want to, they, but, they, but so is Trump. And so that's what's confusing. So what is the deep state? doing with this i don't think they caused it but they seem to be trying to capitalize however they they can figure out how to capitalize on it so what is their motivations here what is their what is their plan going forward do you guys think i would say i would think that they would be keeping their options open as far as how to actually respond because if if you Take kind of the uh, the worst case scenario that which I don't actually think that the Chinese regime is at all fragile. I think they're extremely internally yeah. uh, secure. I agree with you, and will have absolutely no problem uh, containing. Like if they wanted to ramp up the pressure to the point where they're just writing off major urban areas, which I don't think is necessary or would be done but I think they could do it I think they have the technical facility and the uh, establishment of control to do that but if you are the US uh, deep state and you're trying to kind of act in the classical realist uh, like uh, you know just like justice is that which harms our enemies and helps our allies uh, type uh, conception of how states act I don't think that they would have an interest in destabilizing China if China is trying to contain a very nasty uh, infection there. Um, if you like, I I can't see actually any situation with this uh, this sort of uh, outbreak where, like, regardless of the severity, where they would have an interest in destabilizing them. Because, you know, at a minimum, the measures that they've been taking are far more severe than what the U.S. even theoretically could accomplish. Like the, the yeah, U.S. just exactly. not do Exactly. Things. It's like, you know, ha ha, but, well, you know, your, your house isn't on fire yet. And if it was, um, you know, you've got Shaniqua and uh, Raul, you know, uh, on dispatch. I mean, America's going to be more effed up than what's going on over there, arguably. Sure. There was a story, and this is not kind of the the quote unquote deep state. Deep state. This is like the trade negotiation team. But there was a rumor that the Chinese were asking for uh, some trade concessions to offset what they had previously agreed to, uh, in light of these new circumstances, and that the uh, U.S. trade representatives said, "Nah, we're." 
we're comfortable with the uh, with the deal that uh, we agreed to. I mean, you guys are going to be fine, right? Right? You're going to be fine. So, I mean, that's that's the only uh, sort of point, just like minor economic concessions. But it's like, would that even be worth the uh, worth the damage to that relationship? Would that be worth the possibility of retaliation after they do have their stuff together? Um, probably not. I mean, I, I don't really see this as anything where. Uh, there would be any sort of adversarial relationship. If anything, it would be like, how do you, you know, how do you convince them to take the help that they plausibly desperately need on things like a uh, diagnosis of this uh, disease? Like, how do you arrange discreetly for them to have access to 10,000 PCR machines or something? What's what's a PCR? Is that encoding or some genetic thing? What is what is that? Yeah, it's it's uh, it lets you identify. Um, basically, you feed in a little bit of DNA and it yeah. amplifies it a bunch of times, so you can see yeah. if some particular organism is present. I heard they so were able to uh, decrypt. I mean, that's probably not the right word, but they were able to um, sequence. Oh, that's the that's the word. Uh, yeah, the, it's been the virus. It's been and, sequenced for a while. This. Um, this analysis uh, that I read indicated their actual diagnostic capacity, though, to actually, if you give them a sample, say, okay, this is coronavirus, yes or no, um, that that was like in the low dozens like for the entire country, which is absurd. This is something that every, uh, every hospital should be able to do thousands of these per day, just with completely automated machinery, a lot of which is made in China. So, like, there there shouldn't be any problem here, but their claimed capacity is tiny. So, if there's some technical issue there, um, then that seems like something that it would be in absolutely everybody's interests to uh, to help out with. What are the what are the chances that they're lying about the uh, the numbers of infected and the numbers of dead? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah, do you think it's twice or three times as much on oh, both counts? I don't know about that, but you know, I've definitely, I'm sure they're they're lying. Every, I, every I government does. They, you know, I I don't think that they have like one set of golden numbers, and they're trying to make it look less bad than that. I think it's like. Things are real bad, real, real bad. We're not sure exactly who's lying to us. Uh, we've said that liars are going to be punished, and we're uh, we're pretty sure that we're going to stick with that. So uh, you know, maybe these numbers are more reliable, but you know, our underlings don't necessarily know either. So it's turtles all the way down. But uh, you know, we got a pile of dead bodies over here, so uh, let's kind of round down. And say that this has been uh, following this extremely smooth quadratic progression, uh, just like the last time that we had to fake some epidemiology numbers. Is the assumption on your part that they faked the numbers for SARS, that it was much worse than they let on? Yeah, I mean, that that's pretty well acknowledged, I think. Hmm. 
So. So, movies. Anything else you guys want to dive into? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I just want to say one thing, uh, if I may. Um, I, I, I had this textbook in probably high school. I don't know, maybe middle school. I don't remember. But there was a picture of C-3PO on Tatooine just looking off into the distance and I'm sure our audience knows, but just whoever you know may not uh, C-3PO is this robot who can talk. He's this humanoid thing. Uh, anyway, the point was in the entry in the history book was 1970s, a time of malaise, a time of questioning and doubt in America and movies such as star Wars were viewed as uh, an uh, escapist. They were viewed as a nice break from the reality and i've always wondered if netflix and chill is basically the 21st century's equivalent of that because i think there's there just seems to be a withdrawal of most people i know from the public arena because of did you viruses and whatnot did you see the uh the film it came out, I think, almost a decade ago. It was a Steven Sodenberg film about uh, a mass uh, happening, uh, some kind of uh, virus that came out of China. Yeah, we, we talked about right, this last time that we talked about this. Oh, did we? Yeah. Contagion. Yeah, the, in that, yeah, Contagion. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, wasn't it like something to do with bats? Was the origin? Yeah, of it? it was. It was film? literally this. It was literally what's happening here. It's like there's a bat that drops on a market. So you get the you get the like flashback at the end of the thing of it. It's like a bat drops drops on a market, and the chef, uh, you know, is is prowling through looking for those those prime cuts. And he wipes his nose, and he infects uh uh what's her name the terrible lady Gwyneth Paltrow or whatever uh yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow. Paltrow. yeah and like you know they have to basically shut down entire cities and etc cetera, etc cetera. it's it's like IRL but on screen and there's a weird subplot uh that wasn't terribly believable where Jude Law is Alex Jones and he's selling supplements right this is like some predictive programming well, it's pretty, I don't know pretty it's, deep. It's, deep it's, easy enough to, it's easy enough to extrapolate. It's yeah, like I mean, there's basically a new kind of superbug that comes out of China every five to ten years. I mean, most of the major plagues of the last thousand years have come out of you know what's roughly considered China or East Asia. It is just a region that produces plagues and sicknesses more so than any other place on earth. I don't I don't really know why. I couldn't really explain why. Just huge huge uh number of hosts I think increases the probability of viral mutation. I mean in the crossroads of an interaction of people in that zone. I mean right. you know the Silk Road was the origin arguably of the plague uh and today China and India somewhat, although India is considered a subcontinent, uh, somewhat separated by the Himalayas, obviously, from the rest of Asia. But the huge numbers of people, the lack of proper sanitation, the density of the cities, I think, just creates that environment that is a, a very rich breeding ground for infection. 
in Africa. I mean, we can't we can't forget Africa. Our friend, our friend in Africa, the lovely Ebola and AIDS and whatnot, other viruses. Do we do we want to ship uh, ship ourselves from uh, from the coast of China all the way across uh, to the opposite end of the planet and land in New Hampshire? By yes. the time this by the time yeah. this drops, we we only have downside here because I believe the New Hampshire primaries are tomorrow, right? Correct. I don't I know. Think that they're aren't they tomorrow? So yeah. By the time this airs. Uh, we are almost certain to be wrong about something. How aggressive do we want to be with our predictions here? Um, I think booty, booty. I think Ron booty Paul will win New Hampshire. Ron Paul. <laughs> well, I, I honestly think that uh, Butt Guy is not going to win, only because I don't think he was supposed to win in Iowa. Right, he's thirty-nine years old. I mean, come on. I, I think that the the idea is that the correct pronunciation. Is it is it Butt Guy? It's Supposedly, <laughs> he tested out like five different ones uh, before he settled on uh, what he determined was the most hospitable oh pronunciation. God. No one knows how to pronounce this last name. I don't really think it's a real... I mean, has anyone in Malta confirmed that this is a real Maltesian surname? Oh, is that That's where it's the, from? Yeah, allegedly it's Maltesian. Maltese. I don't... But, allegedly. What? Yeah. I mean, if you tell somebody from Malta... Well, if you tell somebody you're from Malta... It's not like they're going to be like, oh, what part? <laughs> and you're going to have to no, they say, explain well, yourself. Malta. They're going to be like, oh, yeah, like the, uh, you know, Crusader Kings. Right on, man. Knights of Malta, man. And that's, that's the end of that, that conversation. It's, uh, yeah. you know, one might say it's a pretty good cover. Yeah. Well, I remember that Buttigieg tried to claim that he was a uh, a person of color due to his Maltesian heritage or something like that. Uh, okay. Felt the lash of the Turk. Right. Right. No. So no one knows how to. No one knows how to pronounce this surname. Um, no one from Malta has thus far confirmed that this is actually authentic Maltesian. You know, this uh, reminds me of someone that was a uh, president once. Um, it's mm, like, who? huh? King Nigger? It's like, hey, guys, um, do, do, do you ever see this guy over in Kenya? And they're like, no. <laughs> oh, oh, Barry. Yeah, Barry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if anyone has a past that screams CIA, it's Barack. Yeah. And if anyone has a past that screams probably CIA, it's Pete Buttigieg. Well, he was naval and probably he was like literally. I mean, the guy is literally a spook. He's naval yeah. intelligence, I think. Yeah. I mean, the, look into the Direct Commission program, the Naval Reserve Direct Commission program, and they hire, and I do mean hire, because you spend two weeks learning how to salute and what the little squiggles mean so you don't accidentally call somebody a major when they're a colonel. And then you're basically like, all right, here's your sidearm. Have fun. They recruit... They recruit so 
almost totally uh, public relations and intelligence, which is to say propagandists and spooks uh, for this direct commission. Once you disaggregate the uh, the medical doctors and the lawyers doing the uh, the medical service in the JAGs. But that, that's what it's for. So you're, it's, having not been following these elections at all, what, what is the, if he's the company man for the, the DNC, what, what then is his role in terms of the electoral politics? I assume his role is to just disrupt Get Sanders and to basically give the CIA control over a political party. I mean, I really, I really don't oh, so know. So it's a serious campaign? Yeah, I really don't know what he's doing or what's interesting about him. He, I, my theory is that he was not supposed to win in Iowa. Their, uh, their app or their ballot stuffing or whatever they did, um, f- you know, went totally haywire, and they accidentally gave this guy way more publicity than they had ever intended to. Um, what you mean? They put a spook in charge of an operation. And the spook turned it to his own ends, putting right. himself in a position of power that his handlers did not intend to give him. Right. How yeah. how could that happen? That's right. Yeah, it seems totally far fetched. I know that almost but, never always happens. Right. I mean, so I, I think that he was not supposed to win. He he did win, and so my suspicion is that he will not win New Hampshire just because they're going to try and prevent a, a political collapse of the party. Well, we, we so saw they rigged the... Pull uh, your heels a little bit. Uh, I was just going to say that we, we saw that the app that the DNC was using to collect, uh, I guess, primary votes was, if not rigged, corrupted, and it skewed, I think, for but but call and uh, against Sanders uh, unfairly. So yeah. Yeah, you can not- make of that however you want. I think that Sanders will probably win New Hampshire and uh, Buttigieg will come in second or third. And the whole pl- ploy with Buttigieg is probably to keep him uh, in the wings, right? Because Joe Biden is basically a walking dead person. He, uh, you know, his brain is liquid. He can barely string together a sentence. He, he, he just can't fake it anymore. Um, no one likes the two women running, Warren and um, who's the other one, Hank? The, Klobuchar. Klobuchar. She's still in it. Oh, my gosh. We're just going to have to go to Washington and give him a good talking to. <laughs> I remember Kavanaugh sucking up to her. I, I, I lost so much respect for him God, when he did that. Faggot, that guy it turned out to he be. He was like... <laughs> She was like, "Oh, excuse me, excuse me, Mister Kavanaugh, but my uh, my dad was a drunk." <laughs> oh gosh, I'm sorry, ma'am. That uh, that makes me respect you and your shrill voice so much more. <laughs> I see now. Uh, I see now where it comes from. Uh, I just oh, I, I, I love when she she made the uh, the climate change speech in in the middle of a blizzard. <laughs> I just I That's can't get over that one. She's was really, uh, really playing up her. I mean, she does the whole like, oh gosh, we're just all modern. I can work across the aisle. I'm trying to do the Minnesota accent, and I just can't. Um, it's yeah, but it's the yeah, just incredibly grating. I mean, 
I think most women in politics have to be somewhat sociopathic. Clearly, Warren is just like just telling obvious transparent lie after obvious transparent lie in a way that actually is pathological. Like her uh, her thing today about walking two miles to the McDonald's that literally you can see from her hotel window. What the fuck is she talking about? <laughs> I, I so I really do question. Not, she is also going senile. Is it possible that she's also kind of just losing it? Oh, I think she's legitimately a pathological liar. Yeah, uh, and assuming she already I mean, had it. That she's going senile. It's just the filter is coming off, and she's no longer uh, making her lies plausible. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I it seems like uh, uh, Clover Clover Char um, Charmander, whatever her name is, uh, you know, she, she she's done. Uh, Pokemon. Biden, you know, he's like the creepy old man that was kind of funny and entertaining for a while when he was, you know, like sexually molesting people on national television. I got kind of a kick out of that, but. Now he's just like falling apart and it's not fun to watch anymore. Um, I'll, I'll give you this piece of advice. If, if you don't, if, if the audience doesn't believe me when I say that his brain is liquid, take a transcript of any speech or rally he gives. Don't listen to him speak. Just look at the transcript or even, you know, his little like speaking moments at the debates and just print it out and read it and you'll realize that it's 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 a complete mess it doesn't make any sense nothing kind of coherently follows from one sentence to another yeah i mean trump Uh, does this this complex thing where he does recursive digressions and back switches and people are like oh gosh it's 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 gibberish look orange cheeto man so dumb but he'll just he'll say one thing he contradicts it, he contradicts the contradiction, and then he moves on. Right. But that That's basically just what he does. It, it is coherent if you look at it through that pattern. He doesn't call just like, hey, you bitch in the crowd, you dog-faced buffalo soldier. <laughs> like, as I was saying, Medicare. Like, yeah, it's, it's I, like know, wait, what? Well, I remember he was talking about healthcare. And then he like at some debate, and he randomly brought up how his wife was like, "My wife used to work with deaf kids." I mean, I know what this is like. <laughs> 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 I, you know, I mean, I, I, I had a lot of respect for him. I thought he was just such a great character. But it's, it's, you know, if he wasn't such a piece of shit, I would feel bad for him. I'd feel like, you know, this is kind of like elder abuse. Um. But any, you know, I digress. Uh, I think that the I wonder, only like, real- I, I really the wild card is Bloomberg isn't contending South Carolina or uh, well, is he? Uh, that guy, yeah, he's that on the guy, ballot in South Carolina now. He's not going anywhere. I, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what his game is, but I can tell you it's not to actually like be. I think he's running for twenty twenty four. Honestly, I think he's just playing be around too- right. Also he's gonna old. be old. He's old. He's a spry. He's like uh, one of these old Jewish guys that I mean, if you Ashkenazim lived to like 107. I mean, I don't yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's literally still flying places and like just 
rambling off the plane, giving a speech, giving back on the plane. Yeah. You know, I think the only people left in this stupid race that actually have uh, any ability to garner support uh, are really the the gay CIA person and uh, and Bernie. And, you know, the, the gay CIA guy is really the perfect foil to Bernie because Bernie can no longer kind of uh, say that he represents some kind of, um, you know, like new new era for the Democratic Party, right? But, you know, the, the CIA operative can come in and basically say, well, I am a homo and I intend to run the country like I ran this curve, sort of meme tier uh, town in Indiana. And uh, I have fresh ideas from my varied experience over the years and I'm young and I'm hip and I'm, you know, I'm all the things that you want and I'm not the old communist screeching about whatever, like screeching about credit card rates and all this stuff. And, you know, to a lot of like normal Democrats who <laughs> I don't, you know, are kind of like, there's still plenty of normal people that vote Democrat, especially in the suburbs. They're going to look at a guy like, uh, you know, CIA operative and vote for him and, or at least throw their support behind him because it makes sense. He, you know, what he's basically saying is that their standard of living is not going to change. He's not really going to do anything big. He's basically going to manage the country for the benefit of the white collar class. Uh, that's what he did in South Bend. And that's what he'll do for America. And he'll add, you know, an, an extra flair to it that, you know, he is gay. Although it will be interesting to see how the rest of the world reacts to a gay American president. Um how you know, did how, they react yeah, to our first gay that. American president? What do you mean, Obama? I mean, you said it, dude. <laughs> I mean, one who is outwardly gay. I mean, I, I don't really know how that's going to play in like the Muslim world. The whole outwardly gay. I mean, a lot of those guys are actually gay on the down low. But I don't know how much the outward gay stuff plays there. Well, I don't have any trips planned to the Middle East uh, for the foreseeable future, so actually I don't care. Um, and frankly, every time I talk to a European, they seem to love all the candidates that I hate. And so if, if nothing else, if a Democrat wins, at least I can travel through Europe again. Right. Yeah, at least the Eurofacts will be happy. I mean, I remember, you know... When- when uh, when McCain ran against uh, uh, Barry, they all the European countries were just um, adrift with uh, a plum for the new anointed American president, and they had all these rallies in European capital cities on news of his political victory and. You know, it was a big deal in Europe. I don't know why it was a big deal in Europe, but it was a big deal for some reason over there. And everyone seemed to really care that we had elected this guy uh, to a national office. Uh, they all felt really invested in it. So maybe they'll do the same thing with 
Mayor Pete. I have I don't know at this point. I think they're all pretty over that. And yeah. there's a weird there's a weird thing with uh, European uh, social dynamics where, uh, so in America they're very very uh, big on the whole born this way immutable characteristic metaphysically ordained, etc. But in Europe, once you start talking about uh, how. Uh, somebody's inherent biological conditions cause them to uh, act a certain way and perform a certain social role. They uh, they start to have the crime stop. Uh, uh oh, that sounds too. Uh, that sounds a little bit too similar to the thing that we're not supposed to talk about. <laughs> so, in, yeah, in yeah the gay gene is one step away from like you know the Aryan gene or whatever. I, I can I can see that argument in Europe. So, so they they tended to a lot more uh, do the whole, uh, like the the political gay identity thing there, and like the gay construction in political matters operates a lot differently. There's not really any sort of uh, weird gay liberation gay liberation theology thing going on. Uh, yeah, in Europe it seems, it you know, like the gay agenda is already like a fait accompli in Europe for the most parts, or for parts of Europe, I should say. Um, I think people there just sort of live with it, and they don't really care. And it's not really a big part of active social life for a lot of, like, general Europeans It. There are pride parades in Europe, but they don't garner as much attention or kind of insanity as the ones in America do, from what I've seen. Yeah, they have the Love Fest or Love Parade, one of the two, in Berlin. And that's basically just debauchery. I don't think it has necessarily any gay connection. It's just hedonism. Um, Right. That's the only one I'm aware of. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that for the most part, like the the, the whole Pete Buttigieg strategy of, well, I'm outwardly gay, and that's what sets me apart, is going to be interesting because, you know, there are huge chunks of the planet where the United States does have, or at least the American empire, has territorial interests. And they seem to like you know they kind of went along with it when they there was this uh, kind of white waspy texan guy with uh, you know married with kids running the show and then you know they kind of went along with it when like the the like the biracial dude was in charge but i don't really know how they're going to go for like a childless homosexual being the main kind of representative behind the empire and its ties to these people. It's, it's, it's a little bit too, it's a little for, bit too on the nose, right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's going to be difficult for the CIA itself to go into these places and try and coerce these people that America is just as traditional as you are. America stands with your traditional tribal values. You know, these people have internet, and televisions they can see that america has a homosexual as president they're not going to be unaware of that i think that little sweatshirt uh, may have said it best yo 
I'm a fucking homosexual. Okay. Yo, I'm a fucking homosexual.